We were looking in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We saw the Apostle Paul talking about the days when Christ returns and what's going to happen at that time. And immediately following this instruction, Paul now gives instructions about how we are to live until the day that Christ returns, namely, that we are to live out and demonstrate the Christian faith. Follow along with me as I read 2 Thessalonians. We're going to begin at verse 4 through 15. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, Paul writing to the church in Thessalonica, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we did not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him. He may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Let's pray for God's blessing on his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we do come before you, and Lord, we ask that you would send your spirit to open our hearts and our minds and our souls to the truth of your word. For Lord, we are powerless to understand it, and Lord, we are powerless to bring about change in our own lives let alone in anyone else's or in this place, apart from the work of your grace and your spirit. So, Father, we pray that you would do so now. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We are living at this moment in the midst of a massive cultural transition. We are living in the midst of a massive cultural transition, particularly for the face of Christianity in our country, and Christians and the Christian church is in a position that it has never experienced before. And many Christians today are struggling to understand how to respond in the midst of this massive cultural transition. But just consider this from one perspective. For most of the 20th century, the national battle of the United States for most of the 20th century was against communism and against the communists. And the communists and communism in their practice was an atheistic state, uh, state philosophy And as a national practice, the communists were viewed as bad, communism was bad, atheism and communism was bad, and were viewed as the enemy. And was typically seen as a general, at least, acquiescence, even if people didn't hold to it themselves, is that, yes, communists are bad, atheists are bad, and religious people are the good people, and the religious people are the heroes. The godless are bad, and the religious are good. But now, the national threat, the national enemy is... Islamic extremists such as ISIS and Al-Qaeda and terrorist organizations. And the media and politicians have been quick to broaden that to religious extremists and loop 
unlump every religious group together, and that now religious people, that is anyone who holds to any particular conviction, that religious people are bad, and now non-religious people are good. And recently, as we saw that in many areas of the country, in our area especially, it is no longer socially advantageous to be a Christian or to identify as a Christian. But this position of being in a, not in, a, in a cultural position where Christians or Christianity are not regarded well, respected, or there's a hostile position or they're looked down upon, while it may be new for Christianity in America, is not a new position for the Christian church globally and certainly not a new position for Christians throughout the history of the world. Here, as we turn our attention to the church in Thessalonica, that was indeed their position. This church was a brand new church, a little over a year old. They were new converts, and the other religious leaders in that Greek, and that Greek culture and the governmental leaders in that area saw the new converts as this is something that is bad that needs to be stopped. And the culture and the, and the people in the city of Thessalonica viewed Christians as the problem or at least the scapegoat for the problems that were going on in their city. And Paul writes to a church in the midst of that situation. Now the Apostle Paul is not so much concerned here about the opposition that Christianity is facing because he knows that Christianity, that the Christian faith can stand on its own. But what Paul is very concerned about is that he is very concerned that the message of Jesus, that the good news of Jesus Christ be accurately taught. And he, and he is just as concerned, some might even say more so, but he is just as concerned not only that the message of Christianity be accurately taught, but also that that message is rightly manifested, is rightly shown in the followers of those who claim to be Christians. That Christians who claim to believe in the Word of God should actually live their life like they believe it. That Christians who claim to believe in the gospel of grace, the gospel of love and mercy, that their life would actually reflect a truth that represents what they believe. Why? Because nothing invalidates a message more than a person saying one thing and then doing another. Nothing undermines the Christian faith more than people who proclaim Jesus Christ with their lips and deny him by their life. And it is given this necessity of the integrity of both the Christian faith and Christian conduct, of Christian beliefs and Christian practices, that the Apostle Paul turns to this issue in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. As he is concluding his letters to them and concluding the issues that are going on in these churches, Paul comes to ensure the integrity of the message and the conduct of the Christians. So far in the Thessalonian letters, Paul has addressed several different threats to Christianity. He's addressed the threat of persecution and how Christians should respond with love and grace to those who are persecuting them. He has addressed the issue of false teachers, as we looked at last week in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, of those that are trying to lead the church astray. But here is something a bit more insidious is that Paul is addressing the problem, not from those outside the church, but he is addressing a problem of those inside the church. He is addressing the problem of Christians who are undermining the message of Jesus Christ by the lifestyle that they are living. Well, what is the threat 
to Christianity that Paul is identifying and addressing coming up from within the church here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. The threat is idlers, the term that Paul uses. This is the second time that he's addressed it in his letters to 1 and 2 Thessalonians. Idlers, those who are loafers. The word here, he sees this in verse 6, 7, and 11. Paul says, keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. He says from his own example, we were not idle when we were with you, and we hear that in your midst, in this church in Thessalonica, there are Christians who bear the name of Jesus who are walking in idleness. Well, what is that? Idleness, in the, of, in, more broadly in Greek literature, this word here is used as a reference to, um, in Greek literature, to undisciplined soldiers, to soldiers who were out of line marching improperly. It was also used in Greek literature of boys or apprentices who were missing days of work, who were truant from their responsibilities. And that is the issue going on here at the church in Thessalonica, that there are these people bearing the name of Christian who are a part of this church who are idlers. Now, why were they being idle? A couple different theories as to why this was the case. And they probably all different, there's, there's credibility to all different, of, different levels of them. One aspect is that the other believers in the church in Thessalonica were very generous. And so there were idlers who were move, mooching off of the generosity of other Christians. Another problem is that the church seems to have been infused with various aspects of Greek philosophy. And in particular for these people, they were infused with the aspects of Greek philosophy that disdained work and disdained manual labor. But the majority of scholars see that the real problem going on here is that why these people were idle was because of a mistaken belief in the return of Jesus Christ. And because of their views and understanding about the return of Jesus, they were now idle. Because their view was this, if Jesus is going to return at any moment, why work? If Jesus is going to come back at any time, why do all these other things? Why work? Why, why be fruitful? Why be productive? And so Paul here in seeing, sees this not only as an, simply as an issue to be addressed, but as a threat that is undermining the message and the reputation of Christianity. Now, why was this such a problem? It's because their actions were undermining the good news of Jesus. In particular, there were four different problems with these idlers, and we're going to look at them. The first one was a problem with their individual beliefs. Secondly, we're going to look at the problem with their individual practices. Thirdly, the resultant problem that occurred within the church. And fourthly, we're going to look at the problem that that demonstrated itself before non-Christians and before the watching world. And so to this situation, Paul responds to them, with very stern and strong words. He does so with an authority that is reserved for apostles. Indeed, five times he says, we command you, I command you, we command you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's using a term that was, res- was the exclusive term of Greek military officers speaking to their enlisted soldiers for whom disobedience meant severe punishment or even death. And Paul is saying, we command you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But you need to address these issues. Well, let's dive into the problems that we see here. The first one was problems with their individual beliefs. These idlers had a mistaken belief system. And what happened was their view and their interpretation of the return of Jesus Christ produced 
this mistaken belief that turned them into idlers. And the issue at stake is that fundamentally, these people, these Christians, did not understand their purpose in the world. They did not understand how they were to live their life and instead were wasting their days, wasting their life, hanging out until the day that Jesus returns. This is a sharp contrast to what the Bible describes as our purpose. You see, the biblical story is this, is that God created mankind, man and woman created the male and female after his image. God created mankind with an inherent purpose and inherent dignity. He created them in God's image. That is, in the image of God to reflect God's glory, to reflect the character of God as mankind did what God created them to do. Well, what were they to do? Well, God said that they were to cultivate the world. They were to cultivate the life of the world, the flourishing of mankind, the flourishing of the created order. But what happened is that that good purpose... For the glory of God to be reflected in us and through us, for the created order and people to the flourishing of mankind and creation to be promoted, that whole thing, that purpose got corrupted. And the way it got corrupted is that mankind individually and collectively, instead of centering our lives on ourself, I'm sorry, instead of centering our lives on God, turned and centered our lives on ourselves. And instead of using the good resources that God had given them, for the flourishing of mankind and the reflection of God's glory, people instead have started living for selfish ambition, for their own selfish pursuits. And this has brought pain, brokenness, turmoil into all areas of the created order in all aspects of society. But God became man in the person of Jesus Christ to reconcile all things to himself. And as the book of Colossians says, to reconcile all things to himself, whether in heaven or in earth, doing so by his blood on the cross. That Jesus died on the cross so that mankind could be reconciled to God. So that through that reconciliation and through the work that Jesus did, that the whole created order, the creation itself, would also indeed be reconciled. And those now who have been reconciled to God through Jesus, those who have experienced the grace and mercy of a reconciled relationship with God through the work of Jesus Christ, what they are to do now is to live their life so that others and that the world might be reconciled and redeemed. And until he returns, our purpose is to cultivate the life of the world and to bring redemption to where there is brokenness. In all areas between man and God, between in society, in all areas of life. It begs the question, what are you living for? I mean, what is, I mean, seriously, what is your life for? Is that if you're a Christian, it should not be some spiritualized version of the American dream. But it should be living for the life of the world. I mean, how sad it is, how sad it is when a person personally knows the redemption of Jesus Christ, has personally experienced a relationship with God, and then they live the rest of their life disengaged from the world, and they live to build their own little kingdoms. And Paul is addressing here this mistaken belief and this problem with these individual beliefs. Second thing he addresses is the problem with individual practices, and he does so much more explicitly. Like all of us, our actions are determined by our beliefs. We do things, what we do is determined by the things that we believe to be true. And what had happened here is that the mistaken beliefs 
of these people inside this church resulted in these misplaced practices and the idleness. And Paul specifically addresses this error in two ways. He addresses it by his teaching and also by his own example that he sets for them. Two components of his response. One is the words that he said and the life that he lived. The Apostle Paul was not one who said, do as I say, do as I say not as I do, but one who said, do as, I do, do as I say and also do as I do. Well, what was Paul's teaching to them? We see it in verse 10. Paul says, for, we would, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Apparently, Paul has stated this multiple times. He said, when we were with you, we gave you this command. And he says it again. If anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. Now, when it comes to people who are in need and people who are not working, they can be grossly grossly categorized into three different groups. There are the cannots, the have-nots, and the will-nots. And the cannots are those who cannot work, who cannot support themselves, who cannot sustain themselves through fruitful labor. And to those who cannot do so, Scripture commands radical generosity, a radical generosity and a radical mercy to support them and to care for them, for those who cannot support and sustain themselves. And then there's the have, the cannots, and then there's the have-nots. And the have-nots are those who can work, but for whatever reason, don't have the opportunity, don't have potentially the resources, don't have the situation where they can do so. And to the have-nots, the Bible commands advocacy, commands justice, commands there to be development on behalf of those people so that they can be in a position of fruitful employment. The cannots, the have-nots, and the will-nots. And it's the will-nots who are being addressed in this passage. And these are the people, the will-nots, who are not unable to work, but who are unwilling to work. And the admonishment that, Paul, that Scripture gives is that if, you are, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Paul specifically says to those inside the church, to those who are calling themselves Christians, if anyone inside you, among you is not willing to work, let him not eat. Paul's point is this. He says positively this is what they need to do. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. What is Paul commanding the will-nots to do? He's commanding them to become fruitful, to become productive, to get a job, and quite literally to mind their own business, to have a business and to mind their own business, to be a producer and not a moocher, to be an, and not to be an idler. That was his teaching. But Paul backs that up by his own example, where Paul says, do as I say and also do as I do, as he addresses the individual practices, verses 7 through 8. He says, for you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. Why? Because Paul is setting them for them an example. Because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day. Paul comes to them, and he was a fruitful worker while he was there. He made it a point that he and his fellow missionaries were not idle that they did not eat food without paying for it. Apparently, they were lodgers and paying guests in the home of Jason, who was his host, as we saw, as, as is recorded in Acts chapter 17. And in order to pay for it, the Apostle Paul was supported by other churches, but also Paul toiled and labored, as he says here, night and day, likely doing leather work in order to support it and to pay for it. 
Well, why did Paul do so? He gives two reasons. The second half of verse 80 says this, two reasons that he labored and toiled. One, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right. He said, but we don't want to be a burden to any of you. He said, yes, we, as a minister of the gospel, we do have a right to compensation. But he didn't want to be a burden to you. What was the issue? Well, the church in Thessalonica was a particularly poor congregation. And he didn't want to be a burden to a poor congregation. But the second reason, and more compelling reason, is this, was to set an example. Verse 9, he says, It was not because we did not have that right, why? But to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. To give an example to imitate. Paul did not want to communicate by his words or by his lifestyle that the enlightened, that the spiritual, that the godly were above work. He didn't want to communicate that. And Paul also did not want to communicate in any way that somehow Christianity worked well with Greek philosophy. Because it was Aristotle who taught in Greek philosophy, as was practiced in the town of Thessalonica. It was Aristotle who taught that the elite and enlightened were above, were completely above work. And that, in fact, everybody else should work so that the elite and the enlightened could alone be citizens and so that they alone could recline and ponder the things that a state needs to ponder. And Paul is saying, as he comes in there, he says, no, that's not the Christian message. Why? Because being a fruitful worker is part of being a Christian. And we know from the bigger biblical story, why? Because we're created in the image of God to reflect God's image, to cultivate the flourishing of mankind in the creation, and to bring redemption to where there's brokenness. And Paul demonstrates that by not only what he taught, but also how he lived his life. I do find Paul's approach to dealing with this issue rather instructive. is that Paul said he explained the teaching, and then he also demonstrated it from his own life. The thing we see here is that each and every person who calls themselves a Christian, and I know that's not everybody here and people are searching and exploring, but do know that each and every person who calls themselves a Christian should be able to say, yes, this is what I believe. They should be able to articulate their beliefs and why they believe it. And they also, as the Apostle Paul did, should be able to say, take a look at my life and you will see what I believe. Look at my life and you will see how God's purpose, how God's mercy, how God's grace and his love is manifested in my life. And the testimony, the reputation, the life lived that verifies the message that we believe should be self-evident. It should be indisputable like the Apostle Paul. For when Paul said, you know how we were among you, you know that we labored day and night, nobody was going to say, no, he didn't. He was just a moocher. He was just a freeloader. It was indisputable, the character of his own life. And Paul is joining these two things together, of the message that is believed and proclaimed, and the practices of those who claim to believe them and claim to live them. As John Stott, who recently passed away, great theologian and scholar of the 21st century um, British writer, wrote this. He said, there is something fundamentally anomalous about Christians who share the word with others while disregarding it in their own life. And that's Paul's point. It's a problem with their individual beliefs. It's a problem with individual practices. 
But the third issue that Paul addresses here is that these individual beliefs and individual practices became a problem in the local church. You see it in verse 11. Paul says, For we hear that some among you, we hear that some who are a part of the church in Thessalonica, we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now this phrase here, not busy at work, but busybodies, this pithy little contrast, does a good job of representing a, a play on words that occurs in the original Greek, um, of not being, a busy, not being busy at work, but being a busybody. So what was happening inside the church? These idlers, people who had no work of their own, became meddlesome in the affairs of others. And they were creating problems and causing dissension and butting their nose in other people's business. Now Paul, as we just saw, individually commanded them to mind their own business, to get a business and to mind their own business and to stick to it. That's what he individually commands them. But Paul says, you as a community, you as a church, need to address this issue that's occurring within your midst. You need to address this problem that is occurring by people who bear the name of Jesus Christ, who are identified with your church. You need to address this issue. And so Paul says to them this in verse 6 and also 14 and 15. He says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of him, of that person, and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Paul's point is saying, listen, this is not only an issue for the individual person, but it's an issue for you as a church and as a church community to deal with it. His instructions are pretty strong. It says, keep away from him. Anyone doesn't obey, take note of that person. He's saying, possibly, you know, the ringleader, take note of who the ringleader is. It says, have nothing to do with them that they would feel ashamed. Why? Not to shame them, but to bring about a change in their conduct. But Paul also tempers it by saying, he says, do so as you would warn a brother. Do so not as an enemy, but warn him as you would a brother. Why? Why is Paul so concerned that the church itself deal with this issue? Because he's concerned about the integrity of the message. He is concerned about the life and the practices of the, those who claim the name of Jesus. And he is concerned about the reputation of the community, the reputation of the church located in a place that bears the name of Jesus Christ. It becomes more clearly when we see the fourth problem. Because the problems here were the problems with the individual belief, the individual practices, resulted in problems in the church. And the fourth issue is that all of these things undermined the good news, the life-changing news of Jesus Christ in the world. It was a problem before non-Christians and the watching world. See, the Apostle Paul went to Thessalonica as the first Christian who had ever been in that place. He was the first emissary, the first ambassador of Christianity to bring the good news, the life-giving news of Jesus to Thessalonica. And as he came there, Paul's pattern was to ensure that he would not be wrongly accused by outsiders of poor conduct, but he made sure that his actions matched his words. He made sure that Jesus, 
who was proclaimed by his lips would be validated by his life, and he knew that anything else would undermine the good news of Jesus Christ in that community. A couple of weeks ago, as we were looking at this same issue in 1 Thessalonians, after the service, Scott Hoffman came up to me and shared a story with me, and he gave me permission to share the story. And he said, he said, you know, when I became a Christian, and Scott became a Christian as an adult, as many of you here did, he was an adult working on base, and he became a Christian, and he, um, he said he had not told his boss that he had become a Christian. And he was talking to his boss one day, and there was a problem with two teammates, two of his teammates, both of whom were Christians. And the problem with them is that they were always off doing Christian things and never did their job in particular. And Scott said what his boss said to him was this. He said, I will never hire another Christian in my life. I will never again hire a Christian if I can. Well, why? Well, I think it's because of what Dorothy Sayers wrote some 70 years ago. Dorothy Sayers, the British crime novelist, Christian, addressing this very issue. And I don't think her admonition has really changed that much in the last 70 years. Dorothy Sayers writes this. She says, how can anyone remain interested in, living, interested in religion, which seems to have no concern with nine-tenths of life? The church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. She goes on, what the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. He's a carpenter. And she goes on, church by all means, and decent forms of amenities, like yes, go to church and don't get drunk, certainly. But what use is all of that if in the very center of his life and occupation he is insulting God with bad carpentry? She goes on to tie it together by saying this, No crooked legs or ill-fitting drawers ever, I dare swear, came out of the carpenter's shop at Nazareth. You see, your life and your actions, which you say you believe and the conduct with which you live, matters. As we began this series in Thessalonians, the first two weeks I asked you to ask your co-workers two questions. Some of you actually believe me and did. (laughs) And the two questions were this. Is to ask your coworkers, what's your view of my face? Is it positive or negative? I just want to know. Is it positive or negative? What's your view of my face? And the second question was to ask, what's your view of my work? Is it positive or negative? How do you view it? And the reason why it's important as Paul has emphasized again and again through First and Second Thessalonians, because it matters what you believe. And it matters if your actions match what you say you believe. It matters that if you say you believe in a God who has a good purpose for this world, that your life would reflect that you're participating in his good purpose in this world. It matters that if you say that you believe in the God of grace and mercy, that your life itself would be a life lived in demonstrating grace and mercy. And the calling for us here, as Paul concludes Thessalonians, is quite simply this. Is that may the message that we proclaim be validated by the lives that we live. 
May the message that we proclaim be validated by the lives that we live. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you. And Lord, we do pray that your spirit would be at work in us. Father, we do pray that your love and mercy and grace, Lord, that your creativity, that your cultivation, that your redemption would be seen in us. Father, whether that is working on base and law firms, teaching, whether that's in our, in our homes and parenting, whether that's in the arts and painting, whether that's in service to other people, whether that's an ordinary and mundane task that seem repetitive and boring. Father, may your truth, may your grace, may you be reflected in us. May your gospel be shown in the lives that we live, may be manifest in the way that we conduct ourselves, may be shown in the quality of our work and our attitude in our workplaces. And Father, through all of this, may there be nothing in our lives that others would look at and say, if that's Jesus, I want nothing to do with him. But Lord, would you make the opposite true? Father, those, would you make the beauty of the gospel would you make the love and peace, your love and your peace, abound within us? Or would you make your creativity and your purpose shine forth so that you may be glorified and that people might want to know you? Father, we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our carpenter, our Lord, our Savior, our Redeemer, our Reconciler, the Prince of Peace and the Giver of Life. It's in his powerful name that we pray. Amen. Let us stand together as we respond to God's word and as it was faithfully preached purely.